0: The Echo Chamber, brought to you by the Homes Report, and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers, and sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.
1: Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Arty Shaw, your host for today's episode, which will be about polling and research both topics that are highly relevant in today's world. We have Ted Mazzarali, who is CEO of Yugov's Data Products on the show and we'll cover off polling, what makes for a good poll, what makes for a bad poll, what makes for a slightly faulty or suspicious poll, and we will also talk about brand research and what what good brand research can do for brands and also what are its limitations. Welcome to the show Ted. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So you are here in San Francisco, but you're based out of New York. That's right. What are your any, any thoughts? I'm sure you're probably here often, but any any thoughts about about uh, how people perceive things like measurement and, and polling differently here
0: than they do in New York? I don't think there are so many differences between San Francisco and New York. I think that most people would probably say the differences are more between the, the coasts of the country and the middle of the country but in terms of how people view polling, I think it's uh, probably pretty similar across the the US. There are are people who have their skepticisms about it and other people who believe in it.
1: Right, and I think today we can probably find people across the board that are skeptical and that buy in, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But first, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, there are so many measurement and research organizations out there um, with a wide range of services. Where do you see, where does YouGov sort of fit into that mix?
0: Yeah, so I think YouGov has a unique position in the, in the research world. Number one is we recruit our own very large panel. So in the U.S. there's 1.8 million people who have joined our panel and who have agreed to participate in research. So a large panel like that affords us uh, the ability to do a couple of things. One is we can interview people virtually continuously. So one of the the products that we have as a brand tracking or brand perception tool, and we essentially are able to be a part of the daily conversation of brands because consumers are giving us continual feedback on about 1,500 consumer brands in the U.S., so whether they've heard good or bad news about it, whether they consider that brand, whether they're customers, etc. So when something happens in the marketplace, whether a new campaign launches, a crisis event happens, a brand is written about in the paper we can get a very early read on the changes in consumer perception based on that messaging. The second thing that we're able to do with our unique way that we recruit a panel and build a panel and engage a panel is that we get people to stick around for a long period of time and over time they tend to trust us more so they'll share more information about themselves and that really helps us in terms of being able to look at data through the lens of people who might have certain attitudes towards advertising or certain political beliefs. And that can be very powerful for brands to understand.
1: So, um,
0: so tell me more about this community of 1.8 million.
1: Who are they? Where do they come from?
0: Mm-hmm. So first of all, everybody has to be online. And in a country like the US, about 85% of people either have access to the internet directly at home or through work or through another means. So it's a good portion of the US population that's eligible. We focus on consumers who are 18 years and older. And people who join a panel like ours are typically people who are engaged in some way. So they want to express themselves, give their opinions, whether it's about brands, politics, uh, topics of the day. And I think people view our platform as a way for them to be heard because they know that we're in the press quite a bit, we publish results from our polls and from our data on our website, it gets picked up by the media. and institutions and brands are looking at the data that they provide, that we collect. Um, So it's a bit of an empowerment tool for them as well, for an empowerment platform.
1: Is there, how do you sort of, is there like an incentivization process? I mean, we've all seen the, take the survey and be eligible for a a free iPad or something.
0: Yeah, so there is an incentive, but we're very thoughtful about how we provide incentives. So uh, we don't provide those sort of lottery draws As a standard way of incentivizing people. What we want to do is encourage people to join our panel and stick around. So over a period of time and the longer that they participate, they'll earn points and over time they've earned enough points that they can be traded in for some very modest incentives that are really thought of as thank yous for participating. So uh, two movie tickets or a $25 gift card for a casual theme restaurant. And there are a couple of things going on there. So one is, we don't want the incentives to, in any way, influence how people answer the survey questions. So sometimes when there's a potential big prize on the line, people may be thinking, if I answer a certain way, I'm more likely to get the big prize. So they start to think about, should I be answering one way or the other? And that can impact the quality of the research. The second is those lottery draws, just like any other lottery out there, reward very few people. And we really want everyone who joins our panel to feel as though they're participating and we're happy that they're participating and we want to thank everybody for sticking around and and answering the surveys. So uh, we think we do it in a nice way. Uh, It encourages people to, to join our panel, remain in our panel, and that allows us to collect more data about them over time, which makes them more valuable to our clients.
1: Is there still an inherent bias in this sample? I mean, the, the, the profile of a person who would opt to be a part of sort of a long-term research um, program, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's a certain type of person, right? I mean, there are certain type of people that just won't opt into that.
0: So, I think the short answer is yes, but the next question is, does it matter? And to answer the does it matter part, we would look at some of the results of our polls. So we have a history of being one of the more accurate political pollsters out there. And the, the real question is, does the type of person that we attract differ that dramatically, or, that, or does, it, does the person that we attract differ from the average person out in the, in the community in ways that matter? So do people who join our panel tend to vote more Democratic or Republican, or the reverse, versus the general population? Our history on the political polling side would seem to indicate that either that bias doesn't exist or the way that we're able to weight the data along various dimensions accounts for that bias and allows us to accurately predict the outcome of elections and then we would say that that translates to our tracking on brand perception it's a much harder uh, it's much harder to prove whether the consideration for Coke is two percentage points higher than Pepsi because there's never an official election that tells you that that's the right answer. But in political polling, there is an answer at the end of the day, and we're able to show that our track record is pretty strong, and that seems to translate to other things that we do online. So does
1: does that 1.8 million people, is that intended to reflect the population of the United States
0: to some degree? To some degree, yes. So. The the panel itself is not perfectly balanced on key demographics like education, income, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, but it's pretty close. And then when we're able to, or when we run polls, we are interviewing a subset of that panel, so typically 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 people. Again, we're trying to interview a representative sample of the US population. There are always going to be some variances in any poll. So you apply weights to make the poll results look more reflective of the population that you're trying to measure.
1: And so the fact that it is a representative sample where you attempt to to, uh, build that, that's how it's different than a focus group, I would think.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways that it's different. So in a focus group, you're typically bringing five or ten people into a room, so it's a very small, intimate setting, and you can get a lot of information from a focus group that you can't necessarily get from an online interview, how people are looking, or what their facial expressions are when they're giving you information. I think the couple of drawbacks that there are to to focus groups is, number one, is it's a very small group of people. So it's very hard to get a representative sample of the U.S. population amongst a group of five or six or ten people who are sitting in a room. The other is, in a setting like that, it's very hard to not be influenced by the interviewer who's typically sitting in the room with you or the other people who are participating in the focus group. So if one person is particularly vocal or particularly strong viewed, he or she may influence the other people in the room. So you may not be getting the most accurate picture of how people really think. In an online poll, one of the advantages is that people get to take that survey at their leisure. So if they want to do that at the breakfast table, on their lunch break, when they get home from work, they're able to do it when it's comfortable for them. And they're not faced with an interviewer, so as long as the questions are written carefully and in an unbiased way, we think the chances of getting accurate results back are higher.
1: So, a good portion of our of our listeners are outside of the U.S. So we've touched on um, what the U.S. sort of panel looks like. Can you talk a little bit about some of the panels from r- the rest of the world?
0: Sure. So, in. Uh, In a country like the U.S. or the U.K. or Germany or the Nordic countries where internet penetration is high, there's not that much difference between the people that we're able to to recruit into our panel and the general population. So we tend to think of those panels as being reflective of the general population or that we can weight that data to reflect the general population. In other markets with lower internet penetration, say like India, (coughs) the, the panel really is more reflective of the online population. For some of our clients, or many of our clients, that's okay because the online population in those countries tends to be younger, more affluent, and for many of our clients, that's the consumer group that they're most interested in, but I'm not sure that a political poll in India against a panel that's more reflective of the online population would be the right approach in a a market like that.
1: So let's talk about balancing this data with, um, that you're collecting with, with people's instincts. So one lesson from the last 12 months um, has been how pre- unpredictable people can ultimately be, mm-hmm. um, and, and their decisions may not even match what they say all of the time. Mm-hmm. So how do you account for this?
0: Right. So there are a few different ways that we've attempted to do that historically. So one is, because we have a panel of people who tend to stick around with us, we're able to interview them over multiple election cycles. And then not only are we asking them how they intend to vote, but we ask them about key issues. So what issues are important to them? And then how do they feel about those particular issues? Or on which side of an issue are they? And we try to look at how they answer a a number of different questions along with how they intend to vote and see if those really match up. So for example, early on in the most recent US presidential election, a lot of people were telling us that they were going to vote for the Green Party candidate or the libertarian candidate. But when we looked at how they answered questions about issues, what issues were important to them, and on what side of the issue they were, we came to the conclusion that they weren't actually going to vote the way that they said they were. So we placed some of those people in different camps. Um, and we think we were one of the first uh, pollsters to actually show that the Trump candidacy was a, a legitimate candidacy and that he was really in it uh, and potentially going to win it. So. Uh, By asking a lot of questions that are not necessarily all in the same survey that capture people at different points in time, we think you can uh, triangulate and get a better understanding of how a person is actually going to vote. In the most recent UK election, we tried something different and even a bit revolutionary in the polling world, and that was instead of focusing on trying to interview 1,000 or 2,000 people at a time that were representative of the UK population, we tried to interview as many people as we could. We ended up interviewing about fifty or sixty thousand people in the UK and we looked at people across a number of different variables and when we looked at individual constituencies in the UK we sometimes were looking at a very small number of sample and we didn't always get an understanding of how directly how someone said he or she was going to vote but we looked at people that we had in those constituencies and said does this person look similar to another person that we have in a different constituency and we're pretty confident that we know how this person is going to vote and because they shared a lot of the same variables we're able to impute how a person was going to vote so that approach faced a lot of skepticism in the UK but at the end of the day we had predicted that the Conservatives were not going to have an outright majority, that it was going to be a hung parliament um, although they would have a, a plurality of votes, they wouldn't have a majority. And that's how the, uh, and that's in fact reflected the outcome of the election. So it's only one election, but it's a very promising result. And we think a lot of other folks are going to be looking at how we approach that election and possibly adjusting how they view or approach future elections.
1: Right. And, and I, I, what we actually do, um, and I'll, I'll include a link to this in, in the show notes for people who are interested, but we actually did an echo chamber podcast on the back of that um, of that poll and in which we uh, this was before the actual election and the question was you know is show how much weight should we put into this into this YouGov poll um so based on what you're saying i mean it seems like there's some there's been i mean there was clearly been no shortage of reflection in polling since both you know the brexit vote from 2016 and the u.s presidential election and i've heard various um Different solutions. One of them is don't don't outright ask people who they're going to vote for, but there are other predictors in terms of what they're going to how they're going to vote. I think after the presidential election it was, I mean, this one seems so obvious. Maybe I'm misremembering it, but one was ask them whether or not they believe that President Obama was born in the United States. Based yeah. based on that, yeah, right. That seems really obvious, but that will give you a better. Um, indicator of how the country, like the sentiment, the overall sentiment of people versus are you going to vote, who are you going to vote for in the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do, are you seeing people experimenting or, or organizations including yours experimenting with different styles of polling?
0: I think that uh, pollsters over the last five to two, ten years have come to the conclusion that you do want to ask questions in a number of different ways to try and tease out what someone really means. So I think in the 2008 and 2012 elections If you were to ask people if they were racist, most people are going to answer that question no. But if you ask them questions about would you vote for a black person for president, you might get a few more people saying no, uh, but they wouldn't say that they were racist. Now that's an obvious example and probably not a very good one, but there are other more nuanced ways that you can ask questions that might get at how somebody really feels about a particular issue and whether race or gender or some other issue is really going to be a barrier for somebody to be able to vote for a particular person. So I think the, the more data points you have on an individual, the more likely you are to be able to tease out how he or she really feels about issues and how he or she may ultimately vote in an election.
1: And this is sort of a really inter- interesting time for polling in some ways. I mean, like I mean we have a mainstream news organization, like 538 that's built all around polling. That's quite popular, um, but on the flip side of that, you have probably an all-time high in terms of distrust in polling. So, sort of, what like, what's your sense of kind of what the overall public sentiment is around polling, and and is there anything that should be done to sort of repair some of this um, compromised trust?
0: Mm-hmm. So. I think people will not ignore polls because they're so tempting, right? Everyone kind of wants to be able to read the tea leaves and, and predict the future. It is disappointing that so many pollsters got, uh, have gotten some of the recent elections wrong. I think the, the good news is that pollsters and research companies are doing the soul-searching and trying to figure out what they got wrong are there variables that they're overlooking. Um, should we be asking people about how enthusiastic they are about a particular candidate, and is that a better indication of whether they're actually going to go out on election day and vote? Um, there are other things that we just can't predict. Uh, if it's raining, uh, are you going to go out and vote? Uh, I don't know that someone can really answer that question honestly or, uh, or effectively. Um, and turnout is an important, po- an important part of the modeling. Uh, that determines whether a poll says candidate A or candidate B is going to win. Uh, Different constituencies favor different types of candidates and if that particular constituency gets out on election day or turns out at a higher rate, that candidate wins the election. So I think the good news is that a a lot of research companies and pollsters are acknowledging that they've gotten some things wrong in the the, the recent past and they're trying to look at better ways to, to do these things. I don't believe that uh, it's an impossible answer or that we can't get to something that uh, puts us in a better place in the, in the near future. At the same time, things don't stay the same. So we may solve the issues that we faced over the last couple of elections, but over the next two or three elections, I'm sure new issues will pop up, um, some that we anticipate and others that we don't, and we'll have to adjust. So let's, let's switch gears
1: for a moment away from politics back to brands. So you know, we've there's been I mean I guess United Airlines would be the, the the one that comes to mind most recently, but there's been there's been sort of a constant stream of sort of social media outrage moments for brands, right? Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of question in terms of whether these actually matter, whether they actually impact the business, um, the bottom line, consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious in terms of what you've seen on your end, of, do these social media outrage moments matter?
0: Yeah. So the answer is yes and no. Uh, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. One of the great things that we're able to do is to bring some objective data into the discussion uh, and maybe look at things a little bit differently. Social media, uh, things can get amplified on social media. There can be a very small group of people that are talking very loudly at each other that can create a lot of noise around an issue and that can be picked up by more traditional media and all of a sudden it seems like there's a real media or consumer outrage about a particular issue. Um, sometimes our data, that's uh, where we're polling against a representative sample of the U.S. population, will confirm what's, being, uh, what's turning up on social media. Other times it will turn out that what, is, uh, what apparently is an issue on social media really doesn't seem to be one from uh, an objective uh, survey uh, proposition. The other thing that's a little bit more nuanced is sometimes people who are outraged about a particular incident are not customers of a brand or even people who are in that category or participate in that category. When we do our brand surveys, we're able to look at people who are customers, former customers, and people who actually purchase in that category. And arguably those are some of the people who really matter when it comes to the financial implications of any crisis on a brand.
1: it would make sense that a brand would come to, to an organization like YouGov when they're amid a crisis and they need sort of a barometer of sort of, you know, public sentiment. But how often do brands come to you when they've launched a, a campaign and they just want to know whether that campaign's resonating, working, hitting the right notes?
0: So brands come to us in both instances. The The bottom line is that for, for people who manage brands, They need to know whether or not the actions that they're taking, whether that's ad campaigns, PR campaigns, promotions, are having an impact. They also need to know if some of the things that are happening in the marketplace that they can't control or that surprise them are also impacting the brand. I think for the typical brand manager, he or she doesn't anticipate that the brand is going to get into a crisis every quarter or every year. So a crisis always sort of catches people off guard because, by definition, it's, it's something that you didn't anticipate. Um, so yeah, those are, those are moments when people are really nervous and struggling and sometimes they come to us. But I'd say the majority of our clients subscribe to our data for measurement of campaigns because those things are more predictable and a brand manager knows that he or she is going to run three campaigns or 20 campaigns over the next 12 months. And each one of those matters. There's an investment required for each one. And oftentimes that brand manager or CMO has to answer to a finance person or a CFO about why are we investing this money and what's the impact. And that's where we can really help bring an objective view to is that campaign having an impact or not.
1: So by impact, there's, you know, of course there's, you know, the public intent to like, you know, is this this change or your perception of brand X, or or make you more likely to, to purchase from them. How reliable is that data in terms of, in terms of like to our point earlier about you know we people will, will tell us one thing, but their behavior may reflect something different. Um, how how accurate is sort of purchase intent, I guess.
0: Yeah, so I think it's a pretty good indicator. It's not a perfect indicator, and while an, while an individual may. I think it's rare, actually, that an individual will intentionally lie in a survey. There are people who change their minds, or there are people who, once they get into a store, you might walk into a store intending to buy product A, but you get to the shelf and you find that there's actually a promotion on product B, and you decide to save 50 cents or $5 and, and purchase product B. I think what the data can help with is for managers or brand managers who launch a campaign, there are a set of standard metrics that we typically look at. So things like brand awareness, advertising awareness, uh, brand health metrics like quality, value, and impression, and then what we think of as lower purchase funnel measures like purchase consideration, purchase intent. And some campaigns are really built around brand building, so it's not necessarily that we're trying to drive people into a store this weekend or next week to make a purchase, but we want to build our brand, make it top of mind, so that when people are next in market, we're in the consideration set. So different campaigns have different objectives. Um, it's not always about getting someone to immediately purchase. Um, so it's important when looking at the, the metrics that we track that you're looking at the right metrics that match up with the campaign and the intention of the campaign. Uh, we do see that things like purchase, con- uh, purchase consideration and purchase intent tend to correlate with sales. In some categories that's uh, that's more clear, like QSR or quick service restaurants. That's a very uh, low price point and short sales cycle. So if someone reads about a promotion, like an all day breakfast or some special value meal, they know that they might go out that weekend and make a purchase and take advantage of that promotion. If you're, on the other hand, advertising about a new model car people don't make decisions about buying cars as quickly or as easily as they do about buying a Big Mac or a Whopper. So typically, uh, car ads are ones that build brand and build image so that when someone is next in the market to buy a car, hopefully that brand is, first of all, consumers are aware of it, and secondly, it's in the consideration set when they do actually make a decision.
1: So so, so if a brand does come to you with, they, they want to track a campaign, and. And they do start to notice there is there is some sort of outrage bubble that's that's forming, and it, 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 totally unexpectedly. I mean, this is a, like I'm thinking of um, the Audi Super Bowl campaign um, called I think it was called Daughters, and it was this really feel good girls empowerment um, marketing campaign, and there was an unexpected sort of outrage bubble, and it, it didn't seem like it ultimately developed into much, but if you're, you know, if you're looking at this data, and I mean, how do you know when something is actually, um, if it's real, if it's going to turn into, if, if there will be real backlash, or if it is a group that, or I mean, or does every campaign have some subset that's going to be offended?
0: Well, I think in today's world, it does seem like there is some subgroup that can be offended by almost any campaign that's out there, but I think the, the reality is we look at the data as objectively as possible. There can be an outrage on social media and we have a number of different metrics that we can look at in our data to try and evaluate whether or not what's happening on social media is going to translate into an impact for the brand. So some of those metrics are very simple metrics like have you heard any recent or positive news about a brand? Have you seen any recent advertising about a brand? Have you spoken about a brand to your friends and family? So if there's an outrage on social media you might see an increase in metrics like word-of-mouth or attention that we're capturing. Um, so maybe people are hearing more about the brand. We also ask sentiment questions: so Are you hearing good things or bad things about the brand? So what we look for to try and read the tea leaves are: Is there are there a number of metrics that are all moving in the same direction, negatively or positively, that might imply there really is something here? The next level of nuance is: <clears throat> Who are the people that are uh, that are trending negatively? Is it the general population, is it people who are not necessarily affiliated with that brand, or is it consumers, current customers, considerers of that brand? That would imply a bigger problem for a brand. So there, um, I think the objective data that we're capturing can, can really help a brand read through the tea leaves and try and understand whether something that's happening on social media is likely to translate into a real issue or a real benefit for the brand.
1: So what role does you go ultimately play as a partner with the brand? Do you all just kind of deliver the objective data and say, look, this is, this is what the hard numbers say? Or do you provide context around those
0: numbers? Well, context is always important. So for example, if you're thinking about the retail space and uh, back to school season at the end of August, beginning of September, that's a time when a lot of people are seeing advertising from different retailers. So if you were only looking at your brand scores in a vacuum, You might see your scores going up and feel pretty good about that. What we do is provide the context of how are the other retailers, your competitors, uh, also moving. And if it's a rising tide lifting all boats, you want to be one of the ones that's being lifted higher than the others. Um, Or you might find out that you're a a laggard. So context very much matters, both in terms of how you're doing versus your competitive set, but also how you're doing versus your most relevant consumer group. But I think you all probably stop short of
1: making recommendations. Or
0: we have a well, we have a syndicated product that really shows people what is happening, and oftentimes that data is enough to help people understand if there's an issue or if things are going well. But we also have the ability to go back to panelists and ask or uncover some of the reasons why scores are changing. So if quality scores are going down or consideration scores are going down, we can go back to a set of consumers who have said that they don't consider a particular brand and ask or probe a little bit more about what are the things that are important to them in making purchase decisions in a particular category. So we can get to an, uh, a different level of understanding uh, on behalf of clients or brands when they think they need it. So uh, we'll end on, on a question that, um,
1: you know, this day and age with SurveyMonkey and so just a slew of sort of online mm-hmm. um, polling tools. Uh, how often do you get brands, and I would think this is probably not with the big brands, but how often do you do you get sort of a smaller brand that, or that's pretty confident, or even a PR agency market, for instance, who thinks, you know what, we can do this kind of sentiment tracking ourselves for mm-hmm. our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, A, I mean, do, do you come across that very often, and B, what would be your response to that?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I have, I'm on an email distribution list from a hedge fund, and I was a bit shocked one time when he actually commissioned a survey monkey poll to try and prove an investment thesis about whether to buy or short a particular stock, and he essentially was asking about 200 or 250 of his friends what the answer was to a very important problem. That, that 250, uh, your 250 friends that you might have in your email distribution list uh, are probably not representative of any population that you're trying to measure. So, um, you know, SurveyMonkey has its place, and there probably are some, uh, some questions that you just kind of want to get a general understanding about, um, and maybe SurveyMonkey is, is good enough for that. but. What we're doing in terms of how we recruit our panel and the research that we're doing is much more uh, sophisticated and methodologically sound. So when we're talking about big decisions about investment dollars around an ad campaign or how to, uh, how to evaluate a crisis and possibly respond to a crisis, I don't think that's something that you want to do on the, the quick and cheap but really want to enlist a methodology that's sound and can get you the right answer.
1: Very interesting conversation, Ted. Um, Thanks for joining us today.
0: Happy to do it. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me.
1: And that concludes another episode of The Echo Chamber. Thanks to Ted for joining us, and of course to our production partners, Marketeers, and to our sponsor, March Communications. We will be back soon with another episode. So if you like The Echo Chamber, then you probably like reflecting on PR and marketing as much as we at the Holmes Report do. Which means you ought to be listening to Hacks and Flax, which is produced by March Communications. To tell you a bit more about it, we have Manny Vega here. Welcome, Manny.
2: Hey, thanks, Arthur. Great great to be here.
1: So, can you tell our listeners what you do on Hacks and Flax?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we like to say that Hacks and Flax, uh, we cover PR, marketing, uh, media, and communications. Uh, And and it's really, you know, this is a podcast for uh, PR professionals, marketers, um, you know, folks in this industry, whether you're working in an agency or in-house, it's just meant to be, you know, interesting conversations with interesting people, experts, uh, company founders, uh, even journalists, that sort of thing, Um, just to to cover, you know, big topics in the industry, provide advice, provide different perspectives uh, to help you do your job better.
1: So I like hex and flax because... You all bring on interesting guests that aren't always PR people, but their work always has some intersection with reputation. Like you, like you said, you've had journalists, founders, along with your own colleagues on the
2: show. Yeah, that's definitely um, that's a big goal for us. We try to you know have as, as unique mix of guests as possible. Um, I think what we found is you know different uh, different people from different walks of life uh, you know have a lot to share in terms of communications and marketing and NPR. Uh, So, for example, we have interviewed journalists before on sort of the big stories that they've covered. Uh, We've done, you know, also kind of how to pitch to a journalist, those type of topics, uh, which obviously are are more important for the PR side. Um, But then we'll do, you know, roundtable discussions with with folks both uh, within our own agency or outside the agency about just the challenges of of, uh, PR and marketing or or just on big issues like, um, you know, the fake news uh, topic that's been going around for quite a while. We did a podcast on that. Um, But we really like having on, you know, founders and people from different, different industries uh, we did a series on uh, of nonprofit interviews as well because we thought you know that could add a good amount of color and a good amount of information that would help um, you know marketers and PR professionals
1: yeah I know there's a there's a good mix of sort of tactical tips and tricks as well as looking at sort of the more strategic higher level issues so we of course syndicate hacks and flocks here on the echo chamber so if you're subscribed to the echo chamber you probably get updates every time we syndicate a new episode of Hacks and Flax but of course we can't we can't publish all of the episodes um, uh, on the echo chamber so Manny where else can people find you
2: yeah so the, the best place uh, you know we do publish new episodes uh, to the March communications blog so if you visit marchcoms.com that's March, com. Uh, you can find our blog, and we'll, we'll have new episodes up there. Uh, but really, the easiest way is is just by checking out any of the, the podcasting services out there. So Apple Podcasts, for example, um, or Google Play, uh, we are on all of those services. So if you subscribe, if you you know you find Hacks and Flax on that service and subscribe, uh, then you get the latest episode just delivered straight to your device. So uh, that's the easiest way to get an alert every time we come out with a new episode.
1: Well, thanks, Manny. And listeners, it's called Hacks and Flex. It's produced by the Tech... PR agency March Communications and if you like geeking out on PR and communications I highly recommend that you tune it in.
0: You've been listening to The Echo Chamber brought to you by The Holmes Report and produced by Marketeers sponsored by March Communications connecting innovation and people.